Thank you, Andre, and greetings from the Morn family. We have got a seven, five, and three-year-old. We live in a flat, and so these are interesting times for us, as I'm sure they are for you. We find ourselves in physically different places, but also emotionally different places. Think of all the people right now who are working, those in the medical services, those involved in essential services. Also think of those at home trying to work with the chaos of children that aren't at school. What, a, what an emotional turmoil so many of you find yourselves. And I also think of all of those that are not working at the moment but would love to be working. Uh, the state of our economy weighing heavily on their hearts, those who emotionally might be anxious, some who are buoyant, some who uh, are fearing illness. We find ourselves all over the place. And as Africans, I'm sure we will keep the flow of memes and funny videos going. But I also want to give all of us permission to admit that this is a time where it's appropriate to grieve, where it's appropriate to bring all of our emotions to our King, Jesus. What we are going to be doing together now is taking our eyes off each other on social media and making sure that we kind of are all doing this lockdown correctly. We're going to take our eyes even off ourselves, our anxieties, our busyness, our, our stuff, and we're going to place our eyes on Jesus. We're going to look to Him. And what I want to encourage each and every one of us to do right now is to engage. Uh, this isn't a Netflix show. This is an opportunity for us as a community to gather together. So go and get your Bible, uh, if it's a physical one in the house, or go and get your phone that has the scripture on. But let's make sure that we turn together to Mark chapter 2 and we engage together as a community as we take our eyes off ourselves and place our eyes on Jesus Christ. One of the things I'd love us to do right now is just to take a few deep breaths, to breathe in, uh, to, to just uh, allow God's Spirit to be at work in us. We want each and every one of us to take time now to think about Jesus. Maybe this is a person you haven't thought about for years and you've got a link uh, sent to you by a family member or a colleague or you've just found your way here while scrolling through social media. And so maybe for you, this is something new to think about Jesus. For others, it might be something that you do on a regular basis. But no matter where you are, I'd love you right now to think about Jesus and to collect up a few words that come to mind right now. And if you're watching this on Facebook, there's an opportunity on the right-hand side to collect up those words and to put them together and to put them down. That we as a community can, can encourage each other and be a source of strength to each other. We are recording this before lockdown, but that doesn't mean that right here, right now, we can't bring the fullness of community to each other by, by the words that we use to describe Jesus. There might be a lot going on since we filmed this, but I put it to you that if we put our eyes on Jesus, we'll be doing something of eternal value. Why don't you read those comments now? Contribute your own. Let's put our eyes on Jesus Christ. And I don't know what words are appearing, but I suspect that there'd be a few words that won't appear too often. Words like liar or blasphemer, which means he, he, he took the Lord's name in, in vain. Those words might not be appearing now, but they would have appeared in the time that Jesus walked the earth. There were very real enemies of Jesus that used those words to describe him. They would, by the end of our passage together today, 
seek to destroy him. And we know they succeeded because next week we look at what happened at the cross of our Easter services. What was it that made them want to destroy Jesus? Why would they call him a liar, a blasphemer? What, what did Jesus do? How did this all happen? Some of the answers are going to come from the passage of scripture we read together now from Mark chapter 2. And I'm going to invite my wife Leanne to come up now to read to us. Hello, my name is Lee. Let's um, read from Mark chapter 2 from verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abatha, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Thanks uh, be to God for his word to us today. So I don't know what word you used to describe what comes to your mind when you think of Jesus Christ. But what these Pharisees used would have been unflattering. They sought to destroy him. And there are a bunch of questions which we're going to explore as we unpack this passage together. And as we do so, I think it's obvious right up front to say that as a community, as a nation, as a world, this can't be business as usual. It feels like a lot has been taken away way more than what we usually give up before Easter, right? The season of Lent. This isn't just, I'm not going to have chocolate or I'm not going to use much social media. It feels like so, so much has been taken away. So these questions become so important for us. Questions like, is Jesus the Sabbath breaker? Is, is he, uh, is he the, the Lord of the Sabbath? And then finally, some concluding questions which will help us respond. With so much taken away, what new things can we put into our lives? What New practices will make us come alive as individuals and as a community. So first question, is Jesus a Sabbath breaker? I know some of you are kind of needing a few terms to find here, and we'll get to that. But let's just pick up the story. Jesus is walking with his disciples through the grain fields, and they're obviously getting a little bit hungry. And so they pluck um, and, and start to eat. And Jesus has got a crowd around him. He's got disciples, but he's also got these other characters, the Pharisees. And they have been following Jesus for quite some time as well. They're the teachers of the law. They're the religious folks, you could say. And they've been upset by different things Jesus has done. Various claims he's made, like that he can forgive sins. And they're watching him closely and they seize upon 
this very moment because they can notice that his disciples in their understanding have broken the Sabbath. They've eaten when they shouldn't have been working. They've, they've been harvesting. That was the big problem. And the Pharisees get a hard rap. I mean, everyone likes to, to have a go at religious people nowadays, but I want to get us a little bit of insight into what was really happening in their minds. You see, the people of God had once been in slavery in Egypt and they'd been worked 24-7 by Pharaoh. Pharaoh's whole approach to life was around accomplishments and accumulation. Accomplishment and accumulation. And that was the cycle they were in until God broke in and performed the exodus through Moses, liberated them from the tyranny of Pharaoh, from accomplishment and accumulation, and brought them in to a new place where God promised to be their God and they would be his people. And in order to secure that, God gave 10 commandments, which I'm sure you all know, but I thought, let me just put them up to confirm your understanding. The first three commandments revolved around the idea that we should love God, that we should love God with our heart, that we shouldn't make idols, and that we shouldn't use his name in vain. And then the the six flowing down from here then spoke about how we should love each other, love God people, whether it's our parents or our neighbors, there's a whole bunch of instructions there on how to be the people of God. We love God first and then we love others. And you'll notice that I've left that fourth commandment empty until now because sitting there was a reminder to practice Sabbath, to practice a day where we stopped and we said, we're not in charge of the world. God is in charge of the world. And then where we delight in God and all that he's made. And we delight in the fact that we can be his people and we can give full expression to what it means to be human and made in the image of God. So Sabbath, according to the tradition at the time, and for many still today, is the practice that binds these two instructions together. How do you love God in this world? How do you love people? Well, you set aside time, one day in seven, where you are reminded God is in control, the Lord reigns, You love God and you're also then reminded not only is he in control, but he is good and he's given us his creation. He's given us others that we can move towards in love. So when the Pharisees are auditing the Sabbath, they're doing it with this understanding that if we're going to love God right and we're going to love people, we need to be setting aside this 24-hour block. And so they feel like they've, they've got a moment here where Jesus is clearly with a group of Sabbath breakers, right? They're they're harvesting on this day. And what is Jesus going to do in response? Jesus, in responding, doesn't force faith on them. He invites faith. Jesus doesn't give them a pat answer and and, and kind of move on. He he responds in in a way that we're going to look at now. He responds with a story, a story within a story. He speaks about a time when David, who they would have all understood to have been one of the greatest kings the Israel ever had, himself came into the temple on the Sabbath. And the only thing to eat there was the bread of the presence, which was prepared on Sabbath and was actually only set aside for priests to eat. But in this particular passage from 1 Samuel, it's quite clear that David takes that bread and feeds himself and his men with it. Breaks the law, in other words. Jesus is very tender towards the Pharisees. He knows how studious they are and how they've understood the Ten Commandments. And so he doesn't say, oh, forget all that stuff. No, he enters into their worldview and explains to them, don't, don't, remember, don't you remember this moment? What Jesus is doing is he's getting them to 
not just focus on the rules, but focus on the reason for the rules. He's drawing their attention to the fact that they might have the letter of the law precisely right, but be missing out on the purpose of the law, the reason why the law exists. This is an example that might be appropriate for us right now as people in isolation. Imagine if you are looking out of your window and you see someone walking on the streets and suddenly they collapse in front. The, the letter of the law, well, what does it say? It says you've got to be on the threshold of your home and, and you, know, you can go if it's a pharmacy or you can go if it's a shop in trip. And you, if you focus on the letter of the law right there, you might stumble and not know what your role is in this particular moment. You call emergency services, what do you do? But if you're able to understand that the reason why, and you understand that why we're taking these extreme lockdown measures as a nature, nation is precisely because we want to love the vulnerable, precisely because it's out of love that we're doing all of this. You will, I think, make the right decision and move towards that person who's collapsed outside your home in love and look to love them. Just as you've received God's love, you flow in love towards others. So you see that what, what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's getting under the rule keeping and asking deeper questions of them. And he, and he makes an incredible claim right at the end here. He says, you know, the, 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 the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, don't set aside your life for rule keeping, rule keeping, rule keeping. This was meant to be a gift for you. And the reason I know that is precisely because the son of man, which is a term Jesus often used for himself. He used it earlier in the chapter the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is, is making an incredible claim now. He is saying, you had a day set aside to remind you to love God, to love people. I am the person set aside to remind you to love God and to love people. I am the one that binds it all together. If you want to know how to live life, how to be fully human, to love God and to love people, you look at Jesus Christ who embodies the fourth commandment, who is Lord of the Sabbath. How are they going to respond to this, right? I mean, this is a massive claim. Let's, let's read together what happens. Jesus, on another Sabbath day, goes into a synagogue. And the Pharisees haven't left him alone. They are still with him. And Jesus sees someone with a withered hand, someone going through hardship, someone clearly not living in a way of flourishing that the kingdom of God would would, would long for. And what do the Pharisees do? Well, they actually watch once again what he's up to. Earlier they'd said, look, look at what your disciples are doing. Now it clearly shows that they are watching Jesus again. What is their motive? It says that they want to accuse him. That word accuse, it's a Greek word which speaks like a legal technical term. It's almost like they're wanting to gather evidence. They're a, they're a good prosecutor getting their case together. And so they see Jesus they see a withered hand and they kind of know that Jesus is the type of king who in his kingdom looks to restore those things that are withered, those things that are broken. And so they get quite excited. They think, oh, this could be the evidence we need. How will Jesus respond? He can see them. This is at the synagogue. This is public. He first turns to the man and he utters these words to him. Come here. Come here. Reminds me of the first words Jesus spoke to his disciples, seeing them as fishermen. He uttered these two words to them. He said, follow me. The invitation to all of us today is the same. Jesus responds with an invitation into his presence, 
into his Sabbath rest, into this new way of being where you love God and you love people. Jesus, God made visible, love made visible, tenderly turns in front of all his enemies to this one man and says, come here. And then he turns to the Pharisees, to the religious folks. And there's some possible responses, right? These guys have been at Jesus for a long time. Jesus could engage in a little bit of outrage culture, right? I mean, surely now he could just turn around and say, how could you guys still be doing this? He could, he could flip some tables. There's, there's a lot that he could get up to here. And that feels like an option sometimes in our own hearts. Or he could, instead of choosing hate and anger, he could choose apathy. He could just kind of go, oh, you know what? I'm just over this. I'm just going to numb myself to all of this. I found a quote from a modern prophet, uh, poet, Taylor Swift, in a song entitled, I forgot that you existed. I forgot that you existed. I did, I did, I did. It isn't hate, it's just indifference. It isn't love, it isn't hate. It's just indifference. So, yeah. What does Jesus do? Does he choose outrage culture hate towards his enemies? Does he choose indifference? So, yeah. No, he chooses love. He chooses love. And he asks them a question so tenderly. He says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He answers their question with a question and he essentially puts these two things together. He says, so, so are we trying to do good and save life or are we trying to do harm and to kill? The ball in your court, what's the, what's the purpose of the Sabbath? What's the purpose of this life? Jesus in love puts that question before us. Of course, the Pharisees now are but caught because if they enter into this, they might have to admit that rule keeping is not what it's all about, that there's something more than rule keeping. There's, there's a relationship of love with God and with others that they've been invited into. They don't know what to do with this. And they just wait and remain silent. They're not interested in genuine dialogue with Jesus. They remain trapped in this paradigm that they've embraced for so long where they want to trap him and accuse him and live nice, tidy little lives of religious observance that actually just ignores God. How does Jesus respond to their accusations? And how would Jesus respond to our accusations? Because if you're anything like me, there are moments where I also feel like accusing God for not keeping the rules. Accusing God for, for the fact that maybe more my industriousness and my, and my hard work seems to have been unrewarded. Accusing God that, that life isn't turning out the way I hoped it would. Accusing God that, that it just seems like there's some people in this world that get away with a lot and, and others that don't, and it just is unfair. Pharisees and I accuse God often, if we're honest. And what does Jesus do in response to accusations? Verse 5 captures it. It says, he looked around at them, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Again, I don't know how many of us would have written on Facebook thinking about Jesus. Anger, right? That's a word that just hits us. Like, what? Nobody told me about that. My Sunday school teacher didn't tell me about that. What is going on? And it requires us to slow down and understand it. Jesus here is what is called righteous anger. And I want all the lockdown parents out there to notice the word righteous, right? This isn't anger. This is righteous anger anger. This is a settled opposition by a loving parent 
to the drugs that have their child addicted, which their child can't wean themselves off of. This is a parent loving their child, wanting them to come into the fullness of how God made them. That is righteous anger. Jesus settled in his opposition to anything that will undermine a relationship with God and a relationship of love with others. Pastor uh, Tim Keller, who's someone I've referenced a lot in my life, and you knew this quote was coming if you know me at all, gave this incredible analogy of an owner of a plantation. He's had to sell a block of his trees to, to get pulped and to get made into paper. And he's doing a sort of final inspection of his trees. And he looks up and he sees a, a mother bird busy nesting in one of the trees. And he knows the bulldozers are coming, the construction's coming. He needs to move this tree on and in love, I mean the bird on. And in love, he shakes the tree and he makes a noise and the bird kind of notices something's going on and maybe flies off and finds another tree. And once again, the owner goes and shakes and causes noise, at which point the bird's going, what is up with this guy? This makes no sense. Can't you just leave me to make my nest? This continues again and again until eventually the, the bird leaves the trees and finds a place in a rock. And finally, the owner knows the, tree is, the trees are going to go, but the rock isn't, and the bird can build its nest safely. I don't know if... You were as moved as I was when I first heard that, that in this time, it feels like every tree is falling. But there is a rock offered that will last forever. That Jesus in his, in his righteous anger is wanting to communicate to us that the trees are falling, but that he is a rock of refuge. Hebrews captures this kingdom of God being one that cannot be shaken. And whilst it's confusing for the bird and it's confusing for us, there's an opportunity of invitation that Christ doesn't force anyone but invites them into of seeing him as the one who is everlasting. Reflecting on this uh, analogy, and no analogy is perfect, but, but it spoke to me. I, I thought about how in many ways the life script that I've followed and that, and that you might identify with right now is failing. See, our whole lives we've been told that we have absolute freedom to choose meaning, to choose the life script that makes sense for us. We've had an opportunity to go for it on so many different ways, enabled by technology and enabled by a global village. But right now we're noticing that was our biggest strength being interconnected is, is actually our biggest weakness because it's created an opportunity for a virus to spread amongst us. And things which, which we saw as being has been rock solid, are, are coming down amongst us. Our, our finances, our, our employment, our co connections to great social events, uh, the sports teams that we used to be able to follow. So many trees are falling. And Tim Keller makes the point that perhaps out of all generations before us, we are the least equipped to deal with what's happening, to deal with pain and suffering precisely because we were told that we had the freedom to choose meaning, but we had to choose it out of things in this life. We were told to ignore anything that wasn't material, uh, anything that couldn't be tested empirically. We were told to, to take the raw substance of this life and to make it the most meaningful thing. But now that it's falling down, we're left without a grid to deal with pain and suffering. And what Jesus does in this moment, looking at them, is he wants to shake them out of the tree and get them to run to the one who perfectly shows us how to live, how to love God and how to love 
people. He's a parent that loves his children. He moves towards us. And, and he responds by looking in righteous anger, but then by turning to the man. And notice his invitation. Stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. This man had no qualification other than the fact that he had a withered hand. We don't know if he kept any rules in life. This is a picture of grace, that there is nothing he's done other than just come to Jesus and just stretch out his life, stretch out his pain, stress, stress out all the chaos. That word withered appears other places of scripture. It's, it's uh, spoken about a fig tree that wasn't bearing fruit. It often speaks about those that long for children, but don't seem to get offspring. It even speaks about those that are on the threshold of death. Jesus seems to specialize in taking those withered parts of our lives and making them whole, restoring them, demonstrating his kingdom. Because of anything we have done, no, we just come to him and we bring our lives to him. Jesus is the king who restores. He's the rock of ages. And right now, maybe you want to invite that part of you right now that is feeling the most withered. Maybe some relational strain that you're carrying in the season and being separated isn't helping that. Maybe it's a financial situation that is, is so upside down. Maybe it's health concerns, very real for yourself and for others. Maybe it's just loneliness, a sense of isolation. Come to him. Jesus longs to make his peace and his refuge available to you. He's turned to the, to the man. Now, he, how will the religious people respond? They went out immediately and they got with a crowd called the Herodians. I won't go into it, but they, they're actually very different to each other. They've got different views on Roman rule, but for once they are united in something. They have a common enemy. Together, they want to destroy Jesus. In their minds, they have all the evidence they need. Is Jesus a Sabbath breaker? Yes, the evidence is clear. He's done a healing on the Sabbath. There's no doubt in their minds anymore. And we know that they ultimately will be successful as we look to Good Friday happening next week. And do you notice just the lack of self-awareness going on here and, and how they were, they were asked a question by Jesus just a little bit earlier. Is it about doing good on the Sabbath? Or doing evil? Is it about healing or, or bringing about death? They didn't answer the question then, but you notice they've answered it now. While Jesus is busy healing on the Sabbath, they have gone off to plot his downfall. And Jesus is showing how without him, so many of our activities lack self-awareness and lack the ability to be truly loving, even though we're trying to keep all the rules. So that. It's my longest point by far. It's the longest question we had to look at. Is Jesus a Sabbath breaker? The Pharisees would say yes, and they're going to destroy him on a cross. But Jesus himself would say no. How do you feel right now? I've covered a lot of ground. Maybe your mind feels a little bit scattered. You feel like Legos stretched out all over the house. Maybe you feel like secret stashes of sweets that you've hidden all over the place and don't know how to find them anymore. Maybe you feel like those loads of books that you started reading and kind of left bookmarks in but haven't got to. I appreciate all of that. But we're now going to bring it in quite soon to land. And we want to ask this question. The great counterclaim Jesus made, which is that, is he, is Jesus Lord of the Sabbath?
That's the key question. Notice, did you see the verse? He says, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's binding two things together. Love God, love people. The first three commands and the last six, he's saying all of that is found in me. I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one that shows you that God is both in control. God is both good. It's hard to believe in a time like this, I know. But there was another time where it was also hard to believe. How do we know that Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath? Well, what helps me is to look to the cross, to look at his family gathered around him, to look at their confusion, to look at the chaos of the cross, to have, have, have an opportunity to overhear their conversations like, I can't believe this is happening. How, how can he be taken at such a young age? So, so much unreached potential. I, I, I don't know what is going on. Surely the world has gone mad. And in a moment where they could have been losing their faith, we know now on the other side of the cross that the greatest thing has ever taken place. Jesus Christ was dying for our sins. He was the king who came to bring us home. None of us can love God and love people perfectly, but he did. And so he can represent us on the cross and make a way for us to come into relationship with God. And Good Friday is called Good Friday precisely because of what was being achieved there. Even those gathered around would not have experienced it as such. And so when we look to this question of, is Jesus Christ Lord of the Sabbath? We don't look to slogans. We look to a person. Light defeated darkness. Life defeated death. And Jesus makes the point as he, as he tells us that he is the son of man as well. And I want to just put it up again because you'd say, okay, well, what does that mean for us? What does it mean that he, he is Lord of the Sabbath? I want to remind you from Daniel, that's the phrase Jesus loved to use, the son of man. This is Daniel speaking hundreds of years before this moment on the cross, speaking about Jesus said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And now speaking about Jesus, he says, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You think about Jesus. Do you think about this son of man? this authority, this Lord of the Sabbath. So the Pharisees think he's a Sabbath breaker. Jesus counterclaims and says, no, I'm, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Possible responses could we take together as a community? I've got two questions for us, which I hope will get this practical. First question is this, do you rest in Jesus? The fact of the matter is isolation is actually incredibly tough because there's something deeper going on, right? There's something more happening at a soul level than just being in our houses for 21 days. Every tree of our lives seems to be falling down. Those life scripts that we'd written for ourselves, we lack the resources to deal with pain and suffering. And that is, that is getting to us in this time. Another modern poet, Mick Jagger, said, I can't get no satisfaction. That kind of describes what's going on right now. We might be kidding ourselves to think as soon as the doors fling open and we can get back to all the stuff we used to do, then we'll be happy. But I think what's really happening underneath ourselves is that those things have been shown not to be 
as sustaining as we thought. Jesus is offering us a rest. He's offering us restfulness, not restlessness. A bunch of us have been reading a book by John Mark Comer entitled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And there's been quite a lot of banter around the fact that clearly that is not a concern right now. Uh, elimination of hurry has taken place on a global scale. And he had this table, which I find helpful, collecting up on the left-hand side all those things that would describe restfulness, and on the right-hand side, those things that could describe restlessness. Don't have time to go all of them. Maybe you want to pause the screen later and have a look or take a screenshot. But they help diagnose where your heart's at. Would your heart be described as restful or restless? As I think about this uh, season, I remember what it was like being a UCT lecturer over three years during the Fismas Fall protests. How every year your plans would get disrupted. You'd have to go down into lockdown. You have to try and make a plan. And I remember some uh, people, when you go out for dinner, they'd say, oh, UCT's shut down. And you go, yeah. And they'd say, oh, it must be nice. Are you going on like a holiday? And I'm just looking at them going, are you kidding me? Like there's no ways this can be described as a holiday. This was probably one of the most restless times of my life. And now this is happening on a, on a global scale. What helped me during that time when I eventually kind of diagnosed the cycles that I was getting into, those emotional kind of states that were throwing me left and right. I was maybe physically there, but I was absent as a spouse, absent as a parent. What eventually helped ground me. It was just this reminder to find my rest in Jesus Christ, to come to him with all my confusion, to come to him with all my emotions, to come to him. And you know what's incredible is that it's not just to the man with the withered hand that Jesus made that invitation. It's to each and every one of us. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I don't choose outrage culture, neither do I choose indifference, but I have humility and I move towards people in love. It's an incredible promise for us. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you are someone who got sent this link by a family member or just found us online, this would be a moment to answer this question in your heart. Is Jesus Christ your rest? He invites you, he doesn't force you, but he invites you to take your eyes off everything else that distracts and to place your eyes on him, to see him as the one who shows us how to live life, to love God and to love others. And then secondly, as we conclude, do you practice Sabbath? Second question, do you practice Sabbath? See, Jesus had a line in there that I want to make sure that we don't miss. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, it's not about you running around trying to keep Sabbath. No, the Sabbath is a gift to you. It's a gift to you. And sometimes it's hard to receive a gift. But Jesus is saying he has a gift for you. He has a 24-hour block of time where you can slow down and remind yourself that God is in control, that the Lord reigns, that you don't run the universe, and also that God is good. God is delightful, that you have much to enjoy. It's not easy to receive this gift. We all kind of want to hustle. We want to still live by Pharaoh's ways uh, of accomplishment and accumulation, accomplishment and accumulation. But he has a gift offered to us. 
So on Easy Receiving a Gift, I reminded when um, Leanne did some shopping for me recently and she presented something to me. It wasn't my birthday. It wasn't Christmas. I got excited. I'm like, wow, I didn't know I was a gift person, but I'm really excited about this gift. And she gave it to me and I opened it up. But you know what it was? It was ear and nose uh, trimmer, an ear and nose trimmer. And I remember at that moment being kind of a bit perplexed because one, on one level, I was quite shocked. I was like, no, I don't, you know, this is, I mean, this is just the worst gift ever. But at the second level, I actually was quite delighted because I was like, yes, the, the hair has been annoying me and I'm quite, I'm quite excited to try this out. I had to admit in receiving that gift that I had, I had some things wrong in my life and I needed to receive it. That's just a trivial example of, what, of what's happening here. Jesus gives us Sabbath rest. He's giving us something we need, but in order to get hold of it, we've got to admit that we've actually been living our lives out of kilter. We haven't been loving God and we haven't been loving others. We've been ignoring God and we've been competing with others, trying to accumulate and trying to accomplish. And what Sabbath does is it interrupts our lives and it invites us in to a new rhythm of life. The word Sabbath means to stop, which is to, to admit that God's in control. It also means to delight. The practice of Sabbath is not just a 24-hour period. It's actually a cultivation of this restfulness that's been described. Final quote for today comes from an author writing about Sabbath, Dan Allender. I put it here because I'm so aware that many of us might think Sabbath and think our grandparents' home, nothing to do on a Sunday, deadly boredom. But he captures it correctly when he says, the Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it is the best day of the week. It is the day we anticipate on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And the day we remember on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Sabbath is the holy time when we feast, play, dance, have sex, sing, pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk, and watch creation in its fullness. We're called as a community to train in Sabbath practices. To not see it as a day off, but to see it as an opportunity to find our rest in God and to delight in God. Why don't we adopt this as a practice? Makes sense maybe to pick Sunday where we choose to rest, we choose to t- turn off uh, the emails, the alerts, we, if, we, if it's possible. Um, we choose to, to slow down and remind ourselves God's in control. And we also choose to delight. We set aside our best music, our, our, our favorite stories. We, we set aside time as a family to go through our highlights of the week. We, we adopt all kinds of practices that just remind us that God is a God of delight and joy, as that quote highlighted. As we land this time, I'm reminded that the focus should be on Jesus. And we're going to next week look at Easter, the death on the Friday, but also the resurrection on the Sunday. And if you want to know why Sunday was chosen, it's precisely because that was the day that Jesus Christ demonstrated that he was Lord of the Sabbath. Sunday is the Lord's day. Sunday is the day that most Christ followers choose the Sabbath, precisely for the fact that that was the day death was defeated. That was the day Jesus resurrected from the dead. He claimed in this passage to be Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees didn't believe him. But you and I today have got Easter Sunday and we can look at his life fully displayed. And so as we respond now, let's remind ourselves that this wasn't just a claim Jesus made, but it's a gift that all of us can receive. 
It is a source of hope that we now can lean into. Will you respond with me now in prayer? Jesus, I thank you for this reminder that we can rest because you did not rest on your way to the cross. You did it all. You completed every step necessary for us to experience homecoming. You didn't choose outrage culture or indifference. You chose the path of love and you chose to make a way for us to love you and to love one another. You chose to make a way for us to be included in the kingdom of God. Some of us right now for the first time receive your invitation to come here, to follow me. God, thank you that we can delight in you because you are delightful. As we catch glimpses of your kingdom, we catch glimpses of those things that were withered being brought to life. Jesus, when we look at the cross, we see your life extinguished. We see your life withering and dying. But we see in resurrection glory, your kingdom breaking in. And so we come right now with those parts of our lives that are withering and we invite you to be Lord of them. We bring the topsy-turvy emotions we're feeling right now, the, the raw nerve endings of our life. And we offer them to you. We invite your Holy Spirit to heal us. Jesus Christ, we are so aware in this time that our trees have been cut down. We even lacked self-awareness around how, how we'd built our nests in them and we were relying on them. Right now as a community, we choose to build on your rock, on your sure foundation. Help us to do that by your Spirit. Amen.